Hello there. Today I wanted to talk to you about a subject that is near and dear to my heart, choosing happiness. It is actually a section, a whole section in my latest book, Misery, You Don't Get My Company. Now, before I get started, I wanted to tell you a couple of really interesting things. The first is that this being a section of my book, I decided to take my own advice to go back and read a section of my own book because I need it. You see, the beast has been attacking me in every single area of my life. I mean, it's really interesting because I have become so strong and courageous and I recognize the beast and I just don't get back down on that mat. But here's the part that's really interesting is that the beast came out of nowhere and he didn't just, you know, kind of give me a, a little jab and, and knock me off guard. He literally tackled me right back down to the mat. Yep. The person who talks all about standing up, standing up against your beast, getting up off of the mat, found herself right back down on the mat. And it actually kind of concerned me because it happened so quickly and so strong. I mean, he really, really had me down over several days. I mean, to, to a point, a low, a really low point. In some ways, a lower point than the day my daughter was murdered. So it was, you know, been kind of serious. So I decided to take my own advice and go into the section on choosing happiness. The other thing that's interesting is that my niece Katie was in town a few weeks ago and she gave me some free consulting, which was such an awesome half a day. And we talked a lot about business and social media and all sorts of different things. And one thing that she suggested to me with podcasting was to read something out of one of my books. And truthfully, it had never dawned on me to read something to you out of one of my books. But I guess it's no different than you listening to a book on tape, right? So I am going to go ahead and do just that. And I hope this will really be helpful to you. And it is, of course, the very first time I've ever read this section of my book out loud. I don't actually typically read my own books because, I mean, I will go in and look at different sections for different things, but I am so involved in the editing process that by the time I publish a book, I've read it 50 times. So I don't typically do this. So we're going on a journey together today. Okay, once again, this is from Misery, You Don't Get My Company. The subtitle of this book is Finding the Courage to Be Happy Again. And it really does take courage. So right here from page 79, we're going right into Choose Happiness. I started this section with an amazing quote from Maya Angelou, and it goes like this. A woman in harmony with her spirit is like a river flowing. She goes where she will without pretense and arrives at her destination prepared to be herself and only herself. Maya Angelou. Misery happens. Remember the bumper sticker that simply said shit happens? Some would rather say stuff happens. The point is that things happen for which we have no control. In other words, life happens. As a result, misery happens too. Children don't come into the world in a state of misery. We become miserable as the events of our lives unfold. Misery takes a hold of us during or after hardship, massive disappointment, heartbreak, or loss. Put another way, life happens. Without working to overcome misery, we get stuck there. 
Webster Dictionary defines misery as one, a state of suffering and want that is the result of poverty or affliction, two, a circumstance, thing, or place that causes suffering or discomfort, and three, a state of great unhappiness and emotional distress. We have all been miserable miserable at times. I was miserable during some of my first marriage. There were periods of misery sprinkled throughout my childhood and into adulthood. None of my prior bouts of misery compared to the near constant state of misery I lived in during my 13-year ride on my roller coaster from hell. I got on the ride as a result of my daughter's addiction and all of the drama, chaos, disappointment, heartbreak, and fear that comes with addiction. You became miserable due to the events in your life. I was tempted to return to a miserable state after losing Jamie and even more so as the days, weeks, and months passed with no justice for her murder. It's easy to become a miserable person focusing on everything that is wrong. Life rarely goes as we had hoped, wished, or even planned. The easy way out is to become cynical, negative, and miserable. Most people don't want to be miserable, but they don't know how to stop. Yes, there are certain people who do appear to enjoy being miserable, but I doubt most of them are enjoying it as much as they pretend to be. Misery happens, but you don't have to stay that way. Victim land. Disneyland is a theme park divided into eight different lands. Among them, you can visit Tomorrowland or Fantasyland. What you will not find in the happiest place on earth is Victimland. In Victimland, you will be surrounded by like-minded people. So initially, this might seem like a magical place. But unlike lands at Disneyland, Victimland is far from happy. There is only one ride, and it is the roller coaster from hell. The good news is that you get a guide on the singular ride in Victimland. The bad news is the guide will be your beast. Music is played throughout the land, songs of sadness, loss, loneliness, and fear. There are several movie theaters strategically placed around the property, and they are open 24-7. You can pop into a theater without the need for a ticket and watch as the sad moments of your life repeat themselves on the big screen. If you get tired of watching your own story, you need only to move to another theater to watch a series of depressing movies from the lives of the other inhabitants of Victimland. Shame hangs in the air over this land like a dense fog. The soot of guilt settles over everything and everyone. Day after day, another layer of shame covers the people of Victimland until their skin is thick with shame and guilt. This is a place where nobody tries to one-up the other by telling stories that are bigger than the last. Rather, they are intent on one downing each other. Each story becomes more depressing than the last. The longer you live in victim land, the more confused you become. It was such a comforting place when you first arrived, but you feel lonelier and sadder than the day you got there. Gone is your hope of being happy again. Joy is a distant memory. You no longer look forward to seeing the people you once were so thankful to have found. Now, even though you are still surrounded by people who understand your story, you have never felt so alone. Becoming a victim may not have been your fault, but remaining one is your choice. Living your life as a victim will keep you hopeless and helpless. There is zero power in victim land. Nobody is happy there. Nobody is living courageously. Stand up and claim your place as a victor. 
cross back over the border out of victim land and never look back. The little thing that changes everything. Positive thinking and having a positive mindset or attitude is nothing new. It is, however, a powerful ability few seem to take advantage of. Thoughts precede the actions we take and the words we speak, even though it seems many people speak without thinking. Whether our words come from conscious or subconscious thoughts, it all starts with our thinking. In a nutshell, thoughts dictate what we say and do, so our thoughts have tremendous power. Consider two people with similar circumstances, and if you were to watch their daily life, it would appear as if the one with a positive attitude did not have the same problems as the one with the negative attitude. A particular situation may not immediately change just because you adopt a positive mindset, but having the right attitude can make your life appear as if many things have changed. I was hesitant to call a good attitude a little thing, as the title of this chapter suggests, but chose to do so because it is one thing that can be changed immediately. It is a seemingly little thing that can have a huge impact. I wrote a post on my Facebook page about perspective. It was after my husband's surgery and the delays that happened that day. It was also the day after the horrific event in Las Vegas, Nevada, when nearly 60 people died and hundreds were injured at the hands of a madman. In reply, Christina posted this message. Thanks for your post. I have been following you for quite some time and have worked through your book and workbook. My daughter was addicted to heroin and is now thankfully three years clean. You have been a godsend and such a help to me, and I wanted to thank you. Unfortunately, we just lost a daughter-in-law in the last Las Vegas tragedy and again are faced with heartache, but you have taught me to be strong in the storm. Thank you again for all you do, and I will continue to follow your work and mission to help others battle their beast. Christina was not only suffering heartbreak and loss, but it was front-page news story, so it would have been expected that her first words would have been about her connection to the tragedy. Yet Christina wrote first of her gratitude. She closed her message with more gratitude and with determination to keep standing. Christina exemplifies a person using the power of a little thing called attitude. You can change your attitude immediately, but keeping a good attitude will take practice. Having a negative, cynical, or doomsday attitude becomes a habit. You will have to kick the habit. It will be a conscious effort to switch out the thoughts you have with new ones to look for things that are good in your life. See the not so good things in a new light. Having the right attitude no matter what is happening is a key component to happiness. Far too many people are looking to outside influences, circumstances, or other people to make them happy. If you want to be happy, I mean truly happy, take a long hard look at the attitude you embrace each day. Optimists can often be wrong, but they are happy and wrong. Sue Fitzmaurice. Gaining perspective. I have had three repeating dreams in my life. One of them I don't like to talk about because those dreams were so disturbing. When Sean was young, I had repeating dreams that he was drowning and I couldn't save him. One time we were at a pool and he was struggling to stay afloat and I could not get to him. Another time we were on a cruise ship and he fell overboard. The circumstances of each dream were different, but each was distressing. It was odd because Sean took swimming lessons at an early age and knew how to swim. He had never been in a situation when he was in danger of drowning. 
I believe this dream represented my big fear that something would happen to one of my kids. I used to say if anything happened to one of them, I would be done. I would be balled up in a corner, rocking back and forth, unable to function. Well, something did happen to one of mine, and I'm not done. When imagining something bad happening, especially to someone you love, there's an overwhelming feeling you wouldn't be able to handle whatever it is. When all hell breaks loose, you discover you can handle a whole lot more than you ever imagined, more than you ever wanted to imagine. You also gain gain some interesting perspective. At age 15, one week after Bible camp, Jamie was arrested for shoplifting at our local mall. The phone call took my breath away. Seriously, I was hyperventilating. I thought it was the worst day of my life. I was horrified that my daughter, one who had been raised by the honesty, honesty police, had done such a thing. Now I nearly laugh at how devastated I was. Don't get me wrong, shoplifting isn't funny. But after what I have endured, my reaction to the shoplifting event is somewhat comical. I certainly would not have wanted Jamie to become a serial shoplifter, but I wish that was as bad as it got. I cannot even describe how I felt the time Jamie had to wear an ankle bracelet to avoid being in jail. Surely this was as bad as it would get. At least she wasn't in jail. The first time Jamie went to jail, I cried continuously for seven hours straight. Nothing ever came of the arrest, but I couldn't bear the thought of my daughter sitting in jail. The situation had something to do with the people she called friends, and it was an opportunity for a good lesson for Jamie, but I didn't care. I did not want my daughter in jail. My husband wanted to leave her there over the weekend and let her get out at the hearing on Monday, but I couldn't handle it. Repeatedly, I cried, I can't have my daughter in jail. I can't. You would think I was the one in jail. Very reluctantly, Rich agreed to bail her out mainly because I pressured him and he was tired of hearing me cry. Plus, I made sure he understood how hard this was for me and that he didn't understand it because he was her stepfather. When she was lying in the hospital with a bullet in her gut, I would have opted for her sitting in jail for the weekend. The next couple of times she went to jail, I was relieved. In the early years of Jamie's addiction, I thought the pain and disappointment would kill me, if not physically, then certainly emotionally. My heart was broken, standing helplessly as Jamie moved deeper into the belly of her beast. If I had ever imagined all of this, I'm sure I would not have thought I could survive it all. At each stage of the process, I thought it was the worst thing I could endure. When you think you cannot make it through whatever it is you're currently dealing with, it is helpful to recall how far you have come. It is likely you are surprised by some of the things you have made it through already. Looking back, it may even seem as if some of the experiences you never thought you would survive are nothing compared to what you are dealing with now. You handled far more than you could have imagined, and you can handle more. After all, your record for making it through these tough times so far is 100%. This may not bring you much comfort as you would probably rather not have to face the things that might occur in your future, but if they are coming your way, wouldn't you rather be prepared for them? Life is tough. We are all going to face challenges and trials. This is a fact of life. So rather than running from our problems, we should gain as much courage as we can. So the things we face won't destroy us. The more courageous you become, the more you will be able to handle things you once thought impossible. Shedding the shame. I have never had trouble laughing at myself or admitting when I have messed up. In fact, I can be downright self-deprecating for the sake of humor. Shame is something else. 
I'm ashamed of you. You should be ashamed of yourself. We have heard those stinging words and we have probably said them. Parents often use these terms as a way to correct their behavior. When a child lies or steals, these words are meant to have a lasting impact. When we were told by our parents that our behavior was shameful, we paid attention. When I was 11 years old, my friend Karen stole a candy bar from our local grocery store. I didn't know she had done it, but when I saw the candy, I wanted one too. We didn't have much money, so candy was a luxury. We went back to the store so I could get my candy bar. Obviously, I was not much of a criminal mastermind. We walked around the side of the store toward the path that led to our neighborhood, happily eating the candy bars when we heard shouting behind us. We turned to find the mean red-haired lady from the store walking toward us. My heart was beating out of my chest as I started walking toward her, breaking up the candy bar behind me as I did. Apparently, the mean lady was too focused on the evidence Karen held in her hands to notice the candy trail behind me. We were hauled into the store and Karen's mom was called. My mom was not notified because I had only been an accomplice. My mom was not friends with Karen's mom, so I knew they wouldn't talk about the incident and I was safe in telling my mom Karen had stole the candy bar and I was simply guilty of being with her. The only reason I had to tell my mom at all is that we were both banned from the store, the same one where I shopped with my mom every week. I was terrified to face my mom, so instead I wrote her a note. Years later, she showed me the note, and it wasn't until I read it again that I realized how much of the story I had purposely omitted. I finally confessed the whole truth, and I was actually glad it had come up again, because the stupid reason to steal the candy bar was one I regretted. My mom didn't say anything to me after she got the note. Instead, she barely said a word to me for about two weeks. It was worse than being on restriction, getting yelled at, or even being told how ashamed she was of me. The look of shame said it all, and the silence was deafening. I never did steal anything again, so perhaps in that case, the shame was effective. Somehow, I managed to make it out of my childhood without a thick layer of shame covering me, but others did not. They continue to wear the shame their entire lives. We live in an age where too many people are not willing to accept responsibility for their actions or words, so I'm not suggesting we give people a free pass. We need to own up to our mistakes and choices. At the same time, we need more grace and forgiveness. When someone has made poor choices, they live with shame. We can even take on the shame of our loved ones. When my fears became a reality and Jamie finally admitted she was addicted to drugs, I was devastated. What I didn't realize is the beast had begun painting me with shame. As Jamie's ride on her roller coaster from hell continued, she spent time in jail, participated in illegal activities, became friends with drug dealers and gang members, and more. She didn't seem to find much wrong with her actions. At least it was the persona she portrayed. I was ashamed of Jamie, and I transferred that shame to me. A layer of shame was painted over me like a second skin. I was the mom of an addict. There was no way out and no way to spin this one. There was no way to make sense of it or to reconcile my parenting to what was happening. I was now one of those parents. My beast took out the paintbrush and slathered on the shame. I didn't have to spend much time wondering what other people were thinking of me as a parent. For years, I had plenty to say about those parents whose children became addicts or criminals, so I knew what they were likely thinking. The more I realized what people were thinking, the thicker the layers of shame grew. One of the beast's favorite tactics is shame. If we remain covered with shame, it is unlikely we will ever stand up and use our story to make a difference. Shame keeps us isolated. Isolation keeps the shame intact. Around and around we go. Not being able to live in the truth of our past, of our entire story, will keep us from true happiness. 
At some point, I started to avoid the whole Jamie subject. If someone asked about my kids, I told them I had a son. Sometimes I was simply too tired to get into it, but often it was my shame that kept me from mentioning Jamie. Once I came out of my cave, my self-imposed prison of depression, shame, and fear, the most amazing thing began to happen. I stopped avoiding the Jamie discussion and people started to tell their stories. More often than not, when they watched the matter-of-fact way I spoke, they opened up and I would hear about addiction affecting them or someone close to them. I could see the relief on their faces and hear the connection in their voices. There are times when the stories I hear have nothing to do with addiction, but people feel safe to share their stories because I share mine without shame. The more I was open about my life, my beast, and Jamie's, the less shame I felt. The less shame, the more I stayed out of my cave. The less isolation I allowed in my life, the more I realized I was not alone. The more connection I had with others, the more the shame melted from me. Before long, I was standing on top of my story living without shame. Stop slinking into support meetings, afraid to state your full name. Don't hide your story from family and friends. The first steps in shedding your shame need to come from you. You might be surprised how people will react when you own your story. Some of the people you might think you are hiding it from might know anyway. If others don't accept you, judge you, or look down on you because of your past or current situation, you might need to move on. Shame begets shame and the cycle continues. It stops when you say it stops. I say it stops now. Never bend your head. Always hold it high. Look the world straight in the eye. Helen Keller. Giving up the guilt. Back in my shame and guilt days, I had a very hard time accepting that I was not somehow responsible for Jamie's addiction. It wasn't just that I had stood on my soapbox condemning parents whose sons and daughters were living the life Jamie was living, but there had to be a reason for her addiction. It could not simply be that she had a predisposition for addiction as her dad did. It couldn't have been her choice. There had to be something big, some decision I made, something I didn't give her as a child. It had to be about me. At some point in my journey, I knew deep down I was not at fault, but I couldn't seem to shake the guilt I felt. I kept apologizing to God over and over. He gave Jamie to me, and I should have done a better job of parenting. My head kept telling me it was not my fault, but my heart was saying God must think I'm a failure. Jamie was gifted with more raw talent, intelligence, and character than anyone I knew. Surely that was by design. She was supposed to go out into the world and make a difference in a big way. From where I sat, that was not happening. Not even close. I repeatedly apologized to God for messing up one of his precious souls, one he entrusted to me. Finally, a friend helped me to understand a new perspective when she said, it's not all about you. If it was not all about me, then who was it about? Oh yeah, that's right, Jamie. Sure, it affected me, it nearly destroyed me, but this was Jamie's journey to travel. I made mistakes and so did Jamie, we all do. It was time for me to forgive myself, time to stop making this all about me. After she was killed, I couldn't help but wonder if I should have started chasing after her again and somehow made her get clean. In our last email communication, she voiced her desire to be with her family and even said life without us was not much of a life. I did tell her I would stand with her and even offered something for treatment, but I didn't chase her. For that, I felt the familiar pangs of guilt. 
As the murder investigation grows colder, the guilt sometimes tries to creep in, but I fight it. I gave up guilt a long time ago. It's time for you to give up on your guilt. Stop punishing yourself. You're not proving anything to anyone by beating yourself up. The only thing you are accomplishing is not accepting the invitation to live in freedom. Refusing the stigma. Stigma surrounds many things. A young adult makes a bad decision and winds up with a felony on their record. No matter how much their life turns around, that mistake follows them like a black mark. He's a criminal. So many other things have a stigma attached to them, resulting in shame, guilt, and isolation. She's got mental problems. He's an addict, junkie, loser, weak-willed. They are divorced. She's the mom with a kid who is addicted to heroin. It's the last example I can relate to. Society as a whole has been pretty sure either an addict got that way because they are weak-willed or because they have bad parents. One's will can have something to do with whether or not they seek treatment or how hard they fight, but there is more to the story. Some people who wind up addicted did come from very dysfunctional homes, and some even had parents who were supplying the drugs. The majority of moms and dads I come into contact with are good parents. They did their best, but despite everything right they did, things went very wrong. Now, on top of their broken heart, the inevitable guilt and the shame, they are burdened by society's stigma. Unless one has lived on the roller coaster from hell watching helplessly as your son or daughter self-destructs, it is wise not to point fingers. Until you have spent years grieving your child while they are still alive, it is best not to judge. We shouldn't jump to conclusions until we have traveled a particular road. It takes courage to understand and to be empathetic. We are in a time where awareness is greater for all sorts of diseases, conditions, and situations. With the ubiquitous nature of social media, there has never been a time when there are more platforms for people to speak out. I see the coating of shame falling off of women and men every day. Society as a whole is changing, but most of us cannot afford to wait in hopes that over time society will change. We need to be the change. I am far from shy and can engage in conversation with anyone, and I love to tell stories, laugh, and meet new people. However, I spent five decades protecting my emotions. I was not one to air out my dirty laundry in public. I am not particularly fond of gossip, and I like to mind my own business most of the time. When I realized it was time to take a stand, though, I took it. Society can think whatever they want about me because I know the truth. I am standing for the truth. Hiding your story is just another form of control, trying to control what others think or feel about you. People are going to think whatever they want to think, so you should stop trying to manage their thoughts and feelings by covering up the truth of your story. Whatever stigma you have been living with, stand for your truth. If someone wants to judge you, let those people cast the first stone. Nobody lives without sin. Stop allowing what others think or what you might think they are thinking to dictate your happiness and self-worth. Choose happiness. I had this false notion after Jamie's death that the beast would leave me alone, find someone his own size to pick on. Like a lot of sore winners, though, he didn't stop kicking me while I was down. We have stepped back into the ring many times in the last year or so. The difference is that the rounds are much shorter now. For the most part, I have the upper hand. However, there are days when he sucker punches me and I stagger around for a bit before I find my footing. Sometimes he lands a strategic jab right at the hole in my heart, but I've learned to embrace the hole and can roll with the punches. The last time this happened was just last week and I was hit pretty hard. It was a one-two punch aimed at my self-worth. I will admit it rocked me for a couple of days and the beast was no doubt smiling. 
Unfortunately for him, he got a little cocky and let his guard down. When I was finished allowing my emotions to run their course, I stood up taller and stronger than I was when he landed the punches. The beast is a bully for sure, but he has met his match. Every now and again, the beast offers me another spin on the roller coaster from hell. He makes a pretty good case for stepping on board. This time, he argues, it would be a right of justice for Jamie. If there were ever a time for me to don my supermom cape again, it would be now. I could get on the roller coaster of justice and ride it until somebody was behind bars, until there was justice for my daughter. I have stepped onto the ride a few times. Every now and then I watch a 48 hours or Dateline NBC episode about a senseless murder. In many of these cases, it was the family's diligence that kept the case alive. I have come to expect after such episodes that I will have certain feelings. I start to think maybe I should get down to the police station and start hounding the detectives. I am sure my beast has a twinkle in his eye knowing that I have a hard time resisting the roller coaster of justice. He wants me to put my energy anywhere but helping other women to stand. Sadly for him, after a few twists and turns, the roller coaster starts to feel pretty familiar to me. The circumstances are very different now, but I know where this ride is headed. We are going to stop at all of the familiar places. Helplessness, hopelessness, frustration, anger, self-pity, guilt, and depression. The ride will take me far from the happiness I have worked so hard to reclaim. In every moment of every day, we have choices. Choose happiness. That, my friends, was a beloved section from this book that I really do love so much. It really was a labor of love and from my heart, and I, I hope it helps you too. You should check it out. It's called Misery. You Don't Get My Company. And the subtitle is called Finding the Courage to Be Happy Again. I really didn't get out there and let a lot of people know about this book because it happened, you know, just a little over a year after my daughter's murder that I that I published it. And there was just a lot going on. And I think emotionally, I just really needed to publish this book. And so now I'm really ready to tell the whole world about it. And I so hope you will check it out. You can find it at ValerieSilvera.com. And of course on Amazon. What I really want to say to you today, whatever it is you're going through, whatever has stolen your happiness, you can get it back. It's all a choice. Today, do yourself a favor, do the world a favor, and choose happiness.